0: Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to catherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello,
0: I'm Catherine May, author of Wintering and the Forthcoming Enchantment, and this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season we ask a range of wise people a common question and this time around we're asking how can we come back together again? Good morning. I'm having tea in my garden. The birds are really singing today. The sun's out, the skies are blue. It's cold. There's a starling on my chimney stack. And it's making the most extraordinary noises, kind of chirping and then clicking. Oh, he's now having an altercation with a pigeon. It's quite exciting, this. I think some mornings all of nature thinks it's spring. when it's really November. We're all a bit stuck in the house first H was ill and then I got ill and now Bert's ill. So it's been a long couple of weeks of everybody feeling exhausted and fed up and very confined really. I'm beginning to feel a bit better and so of course now I want to get out and I have to look after Bert because he's off school. These are the moments when... I really realise that I think I'm quite a solitary person, but I do like the company of others just a little bit. Or even, actually, I like the chance to be on my own, but not in my house. (laughs) It's hard to please me, really. So I'm out here, soaking in a little bit of winter sunshine, which is thinner than summer sunshine, but... I don't mind that too much. I know I say this a lot, but it's important to take in as much as you can whenever it's there. And to go out and feel those changes in the air. I've really noticed in the last few days that the air has changed. It's much, much damper. But it smells really different. You can smell the cold coming. It's also been very windy. I always think a new season blows in on the wind. I quite like to sit with these moments of transition. All over my social media, I'm seeing people get sort of complaining about it and worrying about it and saying, oh God, you can really feel winter coming with a sense of dread. I don't dread it so much. I just think it's different. And I think if we ride that change very deliberately, very intentionally, it opens up a very different relationship with that season that's coming. It lets you prepare, it lets you think how to manage it. For me, it means I've got out a load of my winter clothes. I've got my jumpers out from last year, my sweaters. Sorry, Americans, (laughs) I know it means something different for you. And I have one of those little gadgets that uh, shaves off the bubbles. I used to use a razor, which just, I ended up making holes in loads of stuff, so now I have got one of the electric ones. But it does a really nice job of making everything look fresh again. So I've been doing that. I've washed everything. I've put some nice liners in my drawers and mothballs. Feeling good about winter coming. Anyway... Well, this talk of being alone and being separate from other people is actually a very good segue into this week's guest, who is Priya Parker, who I really wanted to invite onto the show because of the way she talks about gathering. I think it's almost counter to say that the best gatherings are ones with strong rules imposed. But for me, as an autistic person... I love gatherings where I know the rules, where I have a clear roadmap, when where I know when it starts and ends, what I'm supposed to wear, what's going to happen. It really makes a huge difference to my comfort. And I've noticed, as someone who's run a lot of gatherings myself over many years, that the more clear I can be about the exact nature of that gathering the more it helps people to actually relax into the gathering. The rules have to be reasonable. You know, they're only followed by common consent. But the minute I read Priya's work, I was totally bought into it. It told me something that I already knew but hadn't articulated, which I think often are the, the books that hit you the most. And, of course, it's incredibly pertinent to us in this season where we're thinking about how we can come back together again. Anyway, I won't say any more than that. Have a listen. I'll be back later. Trained as a conflict resolution and dialogue facilitator and now helps organizations and individuals to create transformative gatherings. Her best-selling book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters, shows how good gatherings come from conscious hosting. Priya welcome. (laughs) I hope that was an okay introduction.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. That was a beautiful introduction. And as you know, (laughs) openings matter.
0: I know, you've made me very, very (laughs) conscious of how I opened the space for you today. (laughs) I'm sorry, and you're welcome. (laughs) Actually, I mentioned this before we started recording, but for me, when I read The Art of Gathering, I had this lovely kind of rising up of recognition because it spoke to a job that I used to do a long time ago before I had my son, uh, where I used to facilitate groups of teachers, actually, to help them hmm. to reflect on their practice and wow. and often to kind of reinvigorate their uh, approach to their whole profession, you know, because we, we know how tired teachers often are. Yes. Yes. And I've, you know, I've run lots of workshops since, but I had this wonderful moment of like recognition of bringing about gatherings as a skill set Mm. and how you can almost sculpt the room to create the right environment. The first thing I want to ask you really is, I guess for some people, your advice on gathering might seem almost counterintuitive because you don't think it's fun to be laissez-faire and to just let things go with the flow, do you?
2: Well... (laughs) I think it's important to host and to attend gatherings that you want to attend, that give you great joy, that perhaps even give you a sense of peace, that you approach these moments with a spirit of generosity. And I think in many of our gatherings, whether particularly in our communities, with our loved ones, with our friends, outside of work, but even inside of work, we tend to underhost. And what I mean by that is in, in part in not thinking ahead of times with more intention around why do I want to bring people together? What do I hope is actually happening in the room? We underguide our guests and we underprotect them. And what I mean by that is basically, you know, when I when I started conducting this research for the Art of Gathering years ago, well before a global pandemic that banned gatherings, <laughs> I, I started to realize a pattern, which is I was looking at two things. I was looking at what are the elements of transformative gatherings, meaningful gatherings, gatherings mm. in which people, you know, aren't texting under the table wondering when they're going to leave, but are so mm. riveted yeah. by the conversation or the laughter or the person next to them that people stay well beyond when they're planning to leave and, and are changed by it in some way, even in some small yeah. way. And one of the things that I found was that in community after community, in gathering after gathering, meaning lies in specificity. Mm. And in many traditional communities, there are very elaborate rituals that still give the people in those communities deep meaning. And when I say traditional, I mean people who, you know, are born in the same plot of land, who pray to the (laughs) same God, who eat the same food and follow the same dietary restrictions. You know, if you, I'm half Indian, if you go to Southern India and you go to a red thread tying ceremony, at the moment where the red thread is tied around a specific wrist in a specific community, everyone, you know, bursts into tears. (laughs) Why? Because they understand what that symbol is. They understand that it's a crossing of a specific You know, phase of life. They understand that this is not just important for the individual, but of all of the people who raised them. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And as we've modernized and globalized and diversified, all influences that have I have deeply benefited from as a biracial person, as a woman, as a brown person, in trying to not impose a specific way, in trying to not offend one another, our gatherings have become vague and diluted. And we all kind of end up in the living room <laughs> sipping beers, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. or, you know, yeah. the same conference happens again and again and again and again. The panel, you know, is a sort of like format that for some reason has like taken over all structures of of conferences, even though mm. it's not a particularly useful format. And so just go back to your, your spirit of laissez-faire, I would reframe it slightly, which is most people are seeking meaning, right? Seeking seeking some sort of jolt, seeking some sort of (laughs) sense of connectedness with other people. Like I love being alone. I think being alone and being still is this incredibly powerful gift. It's a privilege. And if and when I'm going to be with others, I hope that that time is well spent. And I think in many of our gatherings, it's not. Yeah,
0: actually, the other part of me that really responded to your very clear kind of rules for gathering is myself as an autistic person, because actually, I will often say like, oh, I love my own company. I don't really like going out. But that's not true. Mm. What I don't like is entering disordered spaces where I can't understand what the rules are that are Beautiful. governing. Them. Beautiful,
2: beautiful um
0: and i i love it when those rules are stated in some way like i you know i don't need a sheet you know?
2: yes yes <laughs> but i love it
0: when we all know what's happening what i hate is being in gatherings that feel directionless when i don't know you know when i'm going to eat when i don't know when i'm next going to get a drink yes when i <laughs> When I don't know the shape of the evening and when I don't know when I'm supposed to go home, like all of those tiny prompts help me so much.
2: I love that you've brought this up and I couldn't agree more. I think whether it's autism, whether it's being part of any community in which you don't, for whatever reason, know the codes, yeah, right? Know, Know that in specific German social classes, as it's been described to me, when you're supposed to say kazoon tight if someone sneezes and when you're supposed to stay quiet <laughs> right <laughs> yeah and part of the art of gathering it's my intention with it is that this is a deeply deeply accessible democratic set of skills and set of sort of guides in part mm. because when we gather, again, in traditional communities, when we are all the same, norms and the ways of doing things, knowing what to eat, knowing in what order, all of the things you mentioned, knowing what time to show up, knowing what time to leave, yeah. those are kind of socialized in you from childhood. And then and then your neighbors or your communities kind of all share bro- broadly the same codes. Mm-hmm. And for most of us, particularly those who live in cities, which is, you know, as of 2007, the majority of civilization, it means that we... Have different assumptions about how to be. And the core of the art of gathering is how do we meaningfully connect without all having to be the same? And, and you know, I often talk about gatherings as being social contracts and people will say, you know, it's a dinner party, a social contract, really? Like, <laughs> you know, loosen up Priya. And when I, and when I say that, you know, I'm trained, my, my, my education, my undergraduate education is in political and social thought, basically political mm-hmm. philosophy. And when I say that, we, and people we say, We both have the same undergraduate education. Really? Probably, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling we have many things <laughs> in common. And, and, you know, when you say like a dinner party and people say, There's no, you know, the dinner party is not a social contract. Well, we back into it, right? When someone doesn't bring a bottle of wine and someone else says, Wow, like, how rude. They've broken an unspoken social code within a specific community. And so part of thoughtful gathering, particularly in diverse groups, is first is to orient specificity, not around identity, but around need. And that need not be serious. I got a new rug, right? This is a real example. Anne Dittmeyer, <laughs> she's an expat in France. She got a new Turkish rug she was really excited about. She hadn't, she would sort of in a funk as she describes it from the Pandemic hadn't met any of her neighbors, and she decided to throw a tiny rug party. And people came together, and she unfurled the rug, and then uh, spontaneously, uh, her neighbors started telling stories about how a piece of furniture, you know, began to change their life in some strange way. They changed the couch and actually changed the relationship in their family. You know, yada yada yada. But part of what we're you know when we ex- when we are explicit about what the purpose is and how people can show up in and it can be playful ways, it can be humorous. It allows people who aren't just like you to meaningfully participate.
0: Yeah,
2: it's inclusive. It's, it's genuinely inclusive. inclusive.
0: Yeah, I'm think I, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of so many examples where the rules weren't explicit to me, and the, the shame that we feel mm. when we don't understand the rules is so real, and it's such a social barrier. I'm I'm thinking of a time when I was I think sixteen or seventeen. And I was invited to stay at my stepmother's parents' house on uh, Boxing Day, the day after Christmas. And nobody said anything about dress code. (laughs) Mm, mm, Yep. (laughs) So I turned up in what I wore all the time, which was a pair of leggings and a long jumper. That was my uniform at that, that moment in my life and we all you know we're having tea and a chat and then there was a moment when they said okay we're going to retire now and uh dinner's at, at eight or whatever so I was like oh that's weird so I, I went back up to my little room and sat on my camp bed and um, my stepmother knocked on the door and said you do know they dress for dinner don't you mm. and I was like I have apps and it was just yeah. horrifying yeah. like this I'd fallen foul of rules that i didn't even know existed yes. in anybody's house, yes. um, but actually, I think we can so easily do that to other people we can visit that on our own guests without really, realizing it absolutely yeah, without
2: understanding it, yeah, and I think i I love that example i mean I'm sorry for that example, but I love you <laughs> sharing that example because you know it's not it's not just like why does this matter it's not just for like the honoring of guests that are different from you. It's actually, to be frank, like the core of living in a multiracial democracy, Right. which is if we are, you know, so much, just to geek out for a little bit, so so much <laughs> of like, like strong civic and social fabric and social health is what sociologists think of as bridging communities, not just bonding communities. So bridging communities is when people spend time with each other who, you know, who across communities, across lines of difference and healthy societies have both. You have, you have time and whatever you think of it as your own, whether it's religious, whether it's racial, whether it's, you know, interests, (laughs) softball players gather. Um, And what I call in the book, pop-up rules, which are temporary invented rules at a specific moment in time that are explicit and explained, allow people Mm. to come together as opposed to what we're talking about is etiquette which etiquette yeah. is an it's implicit unspoken. set of rules right mm. that you only know by really being part of a community for a long time and i think so much of modern life is the skill of having empathy for ha- having a sense of who you are and what you want for a night and then also having the empathy for setting people up to choose to be able to meaningfully participate in that
1: mm. i'll
2: mm. give a simple example you know yeah, i i'll give a couple examples the art of gathering came out in 2018 and, um, you know, as you know, from from, from penning penning multiple books, <laughs> if you're lucky, a journalist calls you and asks you to talk about it. So a journalist yeah. called me up, Jancy Dunn. She's a really amazing writer. And she was assigned, I think, for Real Simple Magazine, I'm forgetting now, to write a story about me helping her to art of gathering a fi at dinner party. <laughs> and, and I said to her, what, what do you think that means? And she was like, I I don't know, but you know, this is my assignment and I said, "Okay, let me just walk you through how I would think about it." She says, "Great." So I said, "Okay, what is a specific need in your life right now that by bringing together a group of people, you might be able to address?" And she said, mm. "For a dinner party." And I said, "Just, you know, just go along with it. Just go along with it." And she said, "Okay. I don't know if this counts, but I'm a worn-out mom." And the other day I was at a friend's house and she cut me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich into triangles and fed it to me on a plate and I burst into tears. (laughs) And I said, why did you burst into tears? And she said, because I realized it's the first time in a long time where I was being taken care of. And she said, what if I threw a dinner party for my other worn out moms? Mm. And I said, great, give it a name. And she said, this is me helping her to meaning make and communicate what this vision is. She said, the worn out mom's nanny, <laughs> And then I said, and give it a rule. And she said, if you talk about your children, you have to take a tequila shot. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> great. And uh, exa- and she started, yeah, exactly. And she she did it. And she she and and again, when you meaningfully gather, if everything's a social contract, the opening salvo, the constitution if you will, is the invitation. Yeah. So I said, yeah. put in the subject line, the worn out mom's nanny. write the rule, write, write the peanut butter jelly sandwich story in the invitation. All six women RSVP'd yes within the first 45 minutes. She went on and did it. I think they ended up ordering takeout in part to embody the evening. And part of what she did just to come back to this idea of pop-up rules is we think of rules as own, as sources of control or sources of can only be a, a removal of, of agency without any benefit. But part of what she was doing was she was allowing six people for that evening to decide if they want to attend and then to understand at some level the kinds of conversations she was wanting with a bit of a playful punishment, <laughs> or maybe for some people a reward for other types. And 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 this this is an example of a pop-up rule I love in part because while it's funny, she's actually doing something somewhat radical in her community, which is she's shifting the norms around what parents can talk about when they come together and take that identity off for a moment and say, yes, we can be parents or mothers, and we can also be journalists, and we can also be community members and we can also be newspaper readers. And so part of, I talk about the the dinner on Blanc in the book, which is a sort of these massive pop-up dinners where everyone wears white and they're controversial and they can be seen as exclusive for different reasons. But part of the fascination of them is they are giving people a common code that's explicit that people can decide if they want to enter and engage in. And it's Mm. temporary. And if you want to have a different gathering, a different night where you explain what the rules are and people decide they're signing up for this, like, come on in. Yeah, that's fine. And I,
0: I'm i thinking about how
2: often when we gather, we
0: do something that changes the rules of everyday life to, to mark that change yes. in meaning. You know, like we dance, for example, which we don't often do in a yes. sort of mundane time. Or I'm thinking about my friend Kat's monthly full moon potluck gathering that she holds mm-hmm. in Texas, where she gathers with some friends to celebrate every single full moon. They all bring some food. And they, they engage in acts of divination. They <laughs> someone mm. brings a tarot pack or something. And that you know, it's a very specific change of mode for these, you know, very busy professional women. They're they're thinking about these the bigger themes when they gather. And I I'm I'm struck by the beauty of that, by the, the effort it takes to make a different meaning and to have that real change of, of mind and change of action.
2: It's a beautiful example and it's and you know when i when i was researching this book i spent time with game designers i spent time with all sorts of people people other people credited with consistently creating transformative experiences mm-hmm. and i learned from some of these game designers that in the kind of history of game design theology if you could call it that there was this um i think it was a dutch game designer who had this concept called the magic circle and basically the, as it was described to me is that there's this magic circle where Games are basically this, this, this magical world where through a set of rules, and it can be pick up soccer, right? The tree is the back post, the the, the yeah. grass where the grass meets the cement is the sidelines. You, you know, if someone does something you don't like, you can call a timeout, right? We we imagine mm. a temporary alternative world together. And yeah. that, by the way, is actually every gathering. So every time, I mean, it's kind of magic making, right? I dream something <laughs> up in my head. I think I'm turning 27 or 47 or 72. Wouldn't it be delightful if I could have everyone come and fill in the blank, mm-hmm. dance, sing? give a TED talk, you know, like whatever yeah. it is, it literally doesn't matter. But gathering is acts of manifestation and they're acts of persuasion. You're, persu- you're, you're creating this imaginative, and this is true in the work, workforce. I think right now in the, you know, global pandemic, at least in knowledge-based work, there's huge controversy around when and how and what and where should people meet? Should colleagues meet? Mm. And who decides? And a huge part of what's up for contestation is basically what is worthy around meeting, meeting for. And so part of the, you know, your full moon party example is such a beautiful example. And, you know, if you think about it, that's every gathering. And particularly right now in our, when so many gatherings are still in this moment occurring online, if you work, you know, if you have these online Zoom calls or choose your technology, We're kind of ricocheting. We're like whiplashing between different gatherings and different identities. And you're sitting in the same chair, right? You're going from perhaps a parent-teacher conference on one Zoom call, and then you exit and you go to a work meeting, and you exit and you go to a friend's book talk. Yeah, and you're a completely different person. Yeah, Yeah. and these are different worlds, and they take it takes some shifting. But whether you're hosting or whether you're guesting, gatherings are temporary alternative worlds.
1: And Mm. as as
2: we begin to think about that, it becomes incredibly interesting and fun, but also beautiful and also a responsibility to create and to shape and to hold and then to close.
0: Yeah, because one of the things that you learn when you're an experienced gatherer of people is to manage those transitions, isn't it? Like that's that's definitely part of your job to ease people between different modes and different moments. Um, and yeah, I, I wonder, like, have we I mean, this, maybe this is a perfect time for you to be speaking about this, because have we ever been so conscious about the quality of our gatherings as we have now? Like the pandemic has really forced us to connect with our desire to come together in the first place, but also to feel the, I don't know, we're more sensitive to the changes in mode i guess or or kind of texture as Mm -hmm. we gather like we're picking up on them in ways that we perhaps were numb to before the before we got separated
2: Mm -hmm. i mean through taking gathering from us we began to see it Mm -hmm. right like we started this conversation you asked me to read the opening of, of the art of gathering and part of the one of the first lines of the book is when when governments begin to, when yeah. cities, when nations begin to turn to authoritarianism, one of the first rights to go is the freedom to assemble. Why? Because of what happens when people do come together. And part of what we saw when we couldn't gather is how much we rely on it to mm-hmm. raise money, to learn, to witness, to wed, to mourn, to grieve, to make decisions. And in uh, in my lifetime, I and, and somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about and setting gatherings, I've never seen such a collective interest and attention mm, in, to yeah. this social infrastructure that, by the way, we've been doing since time immemorial. And I think it's such an interesting time and moment where we're beginning to actually ask fundamental social questions for our individual and personal lives and also in our workplaces and also in our public sphere, which is how should how should we do this? right? How, how should we get together? And at an individual level, you know, we think about inf- uh, nutritional diets, right? What am I putting into my body? What do I want to eat? What do I want to drink? And then maybe 10 years ago, this idea of informational diets, right? If you just, right. you know, non- non-consciously scroll your phone or scroll the web, you can end up in all sorts of, you know, rabbit holes and dark corners and, you know, just in be whatever it is, incredibly stressed out, incredibly distracted. And so there's now tools to help us decide what kind of information and where are my sources and how do I think about intentionally engaging with the news? Mm -hmm. I think the pandemic has given us an opportunity to kind of think about our gathering diets. And to intentionally gather. What do I want to attend? Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do I want to shape? How often do I need to go to something? What are my obligations versus my desires? And I think the last thing the pandemic did is for most people, it just slowed the pace of life down for a while. And it's easy to attend all sorts of things when you're on autopilot and running on adrenaline. And I think when we actually go back, I mean, so much of your work is about this. We go back to stillness. Stillness reveals desire. And it also reveals what has been obligation. And we're in this moment at an individual level. And we have to start making some difficult decisions about and conscious decisions about what do we actually want to attend? Who do we want to spend our time with? And how?
0: We'll be back to the conversation in just a moment. But first of all, we know how hard it is to find new podcasts, and we thought you might love this one.
1: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. Hey, How We Live Now listeners, I'm Shelby Stanger, host of Wild Ideas Worth Living, a podcast by REI Co-op Studios. I've always been fascinated by people who have bucked the norm and have chosen an unconventional path, especially those who've used adventuring outside in nature as a catalyst to do so. On Wild Ideas Worth Living, you'll hear from those people, the wild ones, Whether they're walking across America, breaking a record, summoning the biggest mountains, riding ocean waves, starting the largest senior boogie board group, or breaking down barriers, they're all consciously choosing a life with more intention and adventure. On the show, we talk to those famous, and some you may never have heard of, about everything from how to start, how to face fear, deal with failure, and what happens when everything goes haywire, which it often does and what to do after you cross the finish line. Hearing other people's stories of going for it always helped encourage me to go after my own wild ideas. And who knows, hopefully hearing some of these stories may inspire you to do your own wild idea in 2023. You can find Wild Ideas Worth Living wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll join us for the new season and get out there. Remember, as I say at the end of all of my podcast shows, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.
0: One of the things you say is even though we're making these utopian spaces in our, our gatherings, we should bring out our whole self to them. Like, don't bring your idealized self to a gathering, don't bring your very best behavior bring messy humanity right there so that we can connect with each
2: other? I think it depends on the context. And
0: I think that to a work meeting.
2: (laughs) Yeah. But, and and I think, you know, what I'm, I I have this chapter called, you know, keep your best self out of my gathering. And part of what I'm, I'm kind of getting to in that chapter is particularly in our, in our communal gatherings and our peer gatherings that so often, even in things, something as simple as, or seemingly simple as a conference, we tend to show up and think, I'm going to give my stump speech, or I'm going to, you know, rattle off the things that make other people, quote unquote, pay attention to me, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You go to a networking night or a conference and people are handing out business cards and sort of talking about how great their businesses are. But if their businesses were so great, they probably wouldn't be at the conference, right? Like, (laughs) Like we, at some level, we need each other. And in trying to performatively kind of pretend that we don't, we're missing a lot of opportunity for real, authentic, relevant connection. And some of the examples I looked at at the book that, you know, there's these founders, these two guys, they were tired of going to conferences where they kind of realized that, like, they knew they were having a lot of trouble with their business. But every time they went anywhere else, they just felt like, oh, we're just supposed to show our, you know, how great everything is. Yeah, yeah. And so they invented this format that they called the House of Genius, And what they believed is that genius doesn't lie in one person. We all have geniuses and that genius lies in the collective. And they create, to go back to our earlier conversation, a set of pop-up rules. I think it started in Boulder, Colorado, and it's spread all over the world where they bring together and they invite, and different hosts do it. They invite a group of individuals, maybe 10 or 12 or eight um, from all walks of life. People come. They're not allowed to say what their last name is. They're not allowed to talk about work. They're not allowed to say what they do for a living. There's a 30 minute usually, you know, kind of milling around time, meet each other. But again, the only rule is you can't talk about what you do for a living, which I've been to some and they're hilarious. People like, uh, uh, uh," at least in New York, it's like, uh, so I just took my kids to Disney World, you know, (laughs) and, and then they bring people together and it's usually 90 minutes and there's a very structured conversation and a facilitator and three entrepreneurs are allowed to come. They each get a certain amount of time share their problems kind of looking under the trunk this is some big business problem i have a group explain it so that the group of strangers understands it enough group cycle one everybody gets to ask an informative question cycle two each person gets to give their advice but part of the rule is you can't say anything that's even during the advice that dictates (laughs) what you say right so in part if you know if somebody's a venture capitalist in the room and someone else is a nurse or a doctor or a babysitter or, you know, whatever they are, caregiver, the perception around status or relevance or expertise is basically taken off the table. They're temporarily equalizing their guests. That's so interesting. And I've been to a number of them and they're really, it's a really interesting format. It's very specific. It's scary for the entrepreneurs, but it's also people giving them feedback that have no, you know, dog in the fight. And this is this is again an example of the entrepreneurs come in and uh, and they're they're bringing their mess, but they're bringing their mess mm-hmm. within contained, defined rules where everyone is up for that mess, and then it's closed. And I think I talk about fifteen toasts, a format that I invented with a with a friend of mine, Tim Leberecht, in which people often, you know, a group of fifteen people around a table. For whatever reason, it's like hard to have one conversation. It often splits into tiny side conversations. Maybe that's maybe you have a beautiful conversationalist, and you're so happy to have that, but uh, yeah. otherwise, it feels a little stuck. And so we invented the set of rules where we choose a theme and everybody is aware of this is going to happen before they arrive. They sign up <laughs> for it, and at some point in the night, you're invited to to stand up if you're able, ding your glass and share a story about whatever that theme is, trust or light or conflict or borders or vision or heartbreak. Some story from your life that no one else in the room has ever heard and what it taught Mm. you about said theme. And the only other rule is the last person has to sing their toast. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Which in most (laughs) contexts moves the night along. (laughs) Never sure Sometimes you meet a group of singers that usually, it, it, you know, <laughs> the terror of giving a toast is, out, is outweighed by the terror of singing in front of people. <laughs> but I, I, you know, each of these elements are invented forms at a specific moment in time where someone felt a need. And again, they're not supreme forms. If this sounds terrible to you, don't do it. Invent what works for you. But so much of g- artful gathering is just first starting and observing the life and the communities around you and asking what is the actual need here? And then designing, what is a infrastructure or form that would allow people to connect in a way that's relevant to the need at hand?
0: Well, and also that creativity so often flows from constraint. Yes. That actually, the more you restrict people, quite often, the more they will fight against those restrictions and come up with really interesting stuff. Yes. And it's, you know, it's about getting the best out of people that are in the room with you.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, and I think, So, like, I think of gathering as line drawing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to draw a line, probably in the shape of a circle, but I'm going to draw a line. What is this about in this moment? Who is in and who is out for this moment? What is the right amount of constraint that gives people enough orientation to how to be while still giving them enough freedom? To express their own individuality within that constraint. And mm-hmm. you talked about dress codes earlier. It's dress codes to me are such a fascinating example of figuring out the right line between freedom and agency. I have a monthly newsletter and I write, I you know, every month I write about one specific topic that that you know, might shed light on something. And I'm I'm recently writing about dress codes. And I've been trying, I've been collecting examples of dress codes two parties or two launches that I think are awesome. And I'll give a couple of examples. So one is, um, it was a birthday party and the dress code was um, the single best item in your closet, parentheses, (laughs) no shopping. Mm. Another one was for a a movie, a film. I'm forgetting which film it was, but it was for a film. Someone sent it to me (laughs) and it was dress code. Dress like your ex is going to be there. (laughs) Right. And, <laughs> and as I started, you know, he, like realizing, like, what is the common denominator of the dress codes I like? I think there's some amount of orientation. Like, you are drawing yeah. a line, the single best thing in your closet. No shopping. I'm asking you not to spend money on this thing. I, there's actually some care in that. But within that code, there's so much interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it honors the guest. Again, if they choose they, to want to say yes, it's a choice. But if they want to say yes, it honors the guest to think about what is that for them. And then when you go, the best dress codes, it it continues to be generative because when people then show up at that event, everyone is so curious about each other's interpretation, right? If you dress like your ex is going to be there, maybe some people are in a ball gown and other people are in all leather and other people have a brown bag over their head, you know? (laughs) And it's hilarious. And so I think so much of group life is just this this design and this wonder and this creativity around like where, given the need, given the purpose, where is the right level of play? Where's the right level of release? Where's the right level of control? Just as you do in art, just as you do in writing, just as you do in sentence structure. This is just a different canvas and the canvas is group life.
0: Mm. But it's interesting, I think, isn't it, that we've come to dread gathering so much now, and even going back to gatherings that were once very ordinary to us. I mean, my theme for this season is how do we come back together again? And I, one of the reasons that I wanted to tackle that was because I'm hearing so many people express apprehension about spending time with family members now, you know, at Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter or, or whatever comes up, because of this sense that we are now all in conflict, you know, and that that feels very intergenerational and that the stances feel very fixed and that a lot of people are feeling that they can't quite face it. What is happening? First of all, I feel like you're going to have the most clear take of, of all of us on this. Like
2: what's what's going on? I think different levels of conflict and different levels of perception and different levels of identity are happening in different families. And so context as always matters. I I'll say a couple of things. I think for and I'll I'll answer first from a gathering perspective, which is I think guests, you know, this book and this work is called The Art of Gathering, not The Art of Hosting, in part because right. I think guests have a lot of power. They have power in their attendance and they also have power in their absence. Mm. And as we head into the holidays or as people are thinking about navigating their own families and for many people you know, families have multiple circles and multiple lines, right? There's extended family, there's far extended family, there's original family. If you're come from a divorce, as I do, there's multiple families within a, yeah. you know, family of origin structure. I think the first is to ask again and again at the level of the individual, like, what is what is the need here? Right? Why, why, not not just why am I attending this gathering? It's like, what do I want from this relationship and these mm-hmm. relationships? And not worry yet about the form. Like, what do I want from these relationships? Is it a meaningful connection? Is it an ability to have deeper dialogue? Is it actually just to be able to be in the same room and enjoy each other without talking about the things that divide us, right? And everybody's gonna have mm-hmm. their own answer to that. So to answer that first, and then the second is, does the current form that some people in the family currently you know, have opted into work for me? And if it yeah. does, go for it. And if it doesn't, pause and ask, who else is it not working for? And how do we detangle the form around which we keep gathering from actually the need that we actually have. So I'll give an example. I all the examples I have I share, I have permission to share. I was I was speaking to a woman years ago and she realized that in her family, the family context was when they gathered, when she, as an adult, gathered with her family of origin, with her partner and her children, there was a lot of alcohol involved. And the alcohol tied into the ritual of the way her family celebrated Christmas led right. to a lot of trouble. Yeah, And she paused and she basically, long story short, realized that she wanted a meaningful connection with her family. And she didn't feel like she... She had, she, had, she had different choices of wh- where which boundaries to draw. Yeah. Was it to say, yeah. stop drinking in this way, or was it to detangle the form of their attendance at Christmas and create a different tradition in which they spent meaningful time in another form, not on that day? And that's when I said mm-hmm. earlier, gathering is line drawing. And her saying, and she ended up creating a different ritual, which is she invited those family members over on a different day for a different form of interaction. And if a family yeah. rejects that a invitation, difficult. like, you are going to have conflict. But conflict mm. can be generative. So that's the first. I think this, there's a larger, yeah. obviously, question right now happening, which is, and all of these studies show, there's a wonderful book called Civil Disagreement, I think it's called Civic Disagreement, where the author shows how 50 years ago, 40 years ago, we had much more bridging communities. So Democrats had friends with, were friends with Republicans. Um, yeah. Not so much on race, but on, on politically, there you know there's much more bridging. Whereas now it's the percentage of people who say they'd spend time with each other is like tanked. Um, yeah,
0: much lower. Yeah,
2: much lower. And I think that you know there are certain moments that you know our our democracy is in trouble, and we are having some existential collective fights about what mm-hmm. is the core narrative of this country right? When did it begin? W- what what does America mean? What are the symbols? And most, I'm a conflict resolution facilitator. Most groups go through a cycle at some point. And if you think about a nation as a group in which they have to really storm and grapple with who mm-hmm. they are and what narrative is going to, you know, is, is going to kind of win the day. And we are in that. And so I think also at a collective level, at a structural level, with a previous president that was, you know, sowing hate. We it also mm-hmm. creates fractures at the microcosm, and so this isn't happening out of nowhere. There's a there's a collective malaise. Um, the last thing I'll just say is, and and forgive me, yeah. but I, I live with a I live with an author who's just come out with a book called The Persuaders. My husband it, wrote a book recently. His name is Anand Girdardas, and he really looks at the people in the country on the progressive side, on the on the progressive, and particularly on those who believe in multiracial democracy who haven't yet written off sort of the other side and looks at organizers and cult deprogrammers and teachers and, and activists who are kind of getting in there and looking at where and how do you actually engage and what are the skills of persuasion as kind of the, the last political act of a democracy, right, to try to change minds through changing people And so depending Mm. on the family, depending on the the infrastructure to really think about given your need, then what are the skills? And the the last thing I'll say, I know I said last thing is I texted (laughs) this to a friend the other day, organizing and designing gatherings for family, for your own people is so much harder than it is for complete strangers, than organizing gatherings for strangers. Yeah. And we behave better for strangers than we do. We're not part of the system, yeah. right? You're part of your yeah. own family system. People have all sorts of, you know, history and perceptions of one another mm. and a sense of their role in their family. And it's really hard to take risks when you feel when you feel that you have to perform a very specific role. I
0: interviewed Simran Singh who was talking about Sikhism and the kind of sense, the communitarian sense that comes from that belief system and the mm. sense that everybody is radically connected or interconnected and i i guess what i'm fascinated by is how we get back that sense that we are interconnected like to me it seems undeniable but we feel very very separate yeah. and one of the things that he said was that actually in a strange roundabout way and i'm probably misquoting him really badly here but that his experiencing of of aggressive racism as a young man meant that or even as a boy actually took away a fear of that conflict for him, almost. Mm. that like, Mm. actually, he couldn't avoid it. Mm. There was nothing he could do to avoid that conflict. Mm. And therefore, it was almost safe for him to go in and have those conversations with the people that were throwing hate at him, Mm. because they were going to throw hate at him either way. So he might as well enter into the dialogue. That really gave me pause for thought, because it made me realise how the people who are most anxious about gathering back together again are often the people for whom that conflict is actually indirect. You know, they're, they're white people who are worried about their, you know, I don't know, father-in-law saying something racist and they don't, they'll be hurt by it, but they won't be, it's not a personal attack. It's actually a more indirect sense of like, oh God, and then what do I say now? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. how do I, how yeah. do I fight that? What, what argument do I put forward? and I I don't know I I just wanted to put that to you. I know that's quite a diffuse way of asking a question, but I wondered if there is something about our fear of entering into conflict uh, and our lack of trust about what that process will be and I I just I just wondered if you with your kind of conflict resolution hat on could could speak to that like what happens after the conflict if the conflict comes is is that the end or is is it possible
2: for us to then repair one of the kind of Elements in in conflict and in dialogue work, particularly when when there is heat, is Mm. to slow things down. And gathering, you know, as we've been talking about, forget the conflict part of it. Gathering is actually groups are complex organisms. I had a mentor, Hal Saunders, who used to say if he's a group dial he was a group dialogue facilitator, he said, you know, traditional negotiation imagines like it's like a tennis game right? Like you hit a ball, you mm-hmm. have a racket, you hit a ball over the yeah, court. Yeah, you get back again. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Multi-stakeholder dialogue, which is basically all of group life. Imagine as if you had six players with a bracket and 12 balls and a four-sided court, and all of the balls <laughs> are flying at the same time, right? It, like these are complex organisms. That's true even if you're in the same community singing off the same hymnal right? Yeah. Then add conflict, add identity, add, you know, senses of justice to it. There's so much going on there. And so the first thing I say is in each of these moments is to slow things down. And that might just simply mean if you get a text that is upsetting to just pause and to like breathe mm-hmm. and to, and to really think about what are my, I have a, I have a mentor is how do I create choicefulness? In this moment, that's a good word choicefulness. What are all of the different options I have to respond? Mm-hmm. What is it that I actually want or need in this moment? And what are the different ways that I might create a different way, like expand the playing field of this very narrow strike? And I think, you know, in the Simran example, he's choosing to engage. And I don't know the context. Yeah, I don't know if he's in choosing yeah. to engage in a way that makes him feel safe. I don't know if it's days later. I don't know if he's what he's doing to protect his own safety, if Mm -hmm. if at all. But I think with each of us, there's like, what am I doing for my individual relationships? And then also, what am I doing as a white person? What am I doing as a citizen? What am I doing, you know, and for what reasons and and when? And I think, I mean, we'll go back, maybe we can end where we started, which is like modern life (laughs) is complex and it's full of choice. And that can be debilitating and it can also be incredibly empowering. And I think in each of these moments of, of having both dignity and integrity to what your values are when you're engaging with other people, it's all practice. And in my experience, like getting together with family in conflict, it's like, that's like ground zero. That is the most complex. I can tell you from my own experience, that is the most <laughs> complex gathering yeah. that you ever can imagine. And many people are still thinking about gathering just at the basic level that it's still kind of scary to see other people, right? You've been perhaps not doing that for many years. And so it's like baby steps. Like just start practicing gathering in small, simple ways that are short-lived, that are with people you like, Mm -hmm. and practice like breathing physiologically, (laughs) practice talking again, practice telling a joke, like going to family, extend a family dinner where there's conflict around a specific like meaningful ritualized holiday Mm, mm. is like the Olympics of gathering. (laughs) 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 Let's not start there. Um, But you can practice, (laughs) like practice and very, like I'm a student of improv. Improv is a entire philosophy, physical philosophy of creating choicefulness, right? Mm. You're given a prompt, Mm. you're present to that prompt, and you think about all of the different ways that you could, you could say yes, you could Respond. respond to that prompt. And so much of so much of of kind of working one's way up to self-differentiating within your family, right? There's this wonderful book. I'll end here. There's this wonderful book I read recently called If You Met My Family, you'd understand. <laughs> <laughs> Greatest title ever. And it was it's written by a Japanese American minister beautiful little sleeve of a book. And he basically says self-differentiation is, is something like, I'm going to paraphrase here, when you can be who you are and say what you think, even when the surrounding togetherness pressure, even when the surrounding family culture is different from that. And he says mm-hmm. the core muscle to practice that step is what he calls a non-anxious presence. Which, it's not a non-anxious mean? absence. I'm fine if I'm right. not with them, but I'm fall apart if I'm with them. It's also yeah. not an anxious presence. So you're nervous. Right? It's just literally practicing a non-anxious presence that allows mm. you to begin to say who you are or say what you believe, even when the surrounding culture or context is different from that and still be present. It's actually, we have looped back because that because that shows exactly where structure helps us.
0: Um, if, we, if we're not anxious about the other parts of the gathering, then we've got half a chance of, of holding our own, really, and, and kind of keeping our integrity. But also, it seems to me more and more that we're just a little out of practice and that it's okay to to be an eternal learner and it's okay to practice again. And that's, it's, that's it's, a comforting
2: message. It's not just okay. It's like, it's the whole thing. This mm. is all practice. Mm. That's amazing. Thank you so much. It's
0: been brilliant to talk to you. The time went so quickly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your beautiful questions. I loved having this conversation with you. Thank you.
0: I always think the seagulls are louder in the winter. I don't know if that's true. I think they come in from the Seymour. It's stormier, so they come inland. Maybe they're looking for shelter on our roofs. It's the only time of the year I notice them. The rest of the year I'm quite often on a Zoom call or something and the person I'm speaking to will say, "Uh, (gasps) I can hear the seagulls. And I just think, they're just background noise to me. I never notice the seagulls. They're just part of the general hum of the everyday and i i remember when i first moved to the sea as well um people saying oh the seagulls will drive you mad you'll hear nothing but seagulls you just don't notice them they're so present all the time but in winter i hear them again i suppose all the birds are busy getting ready and the squirrels are back too i didn't see our squirrel much all summer but every morning now, the dog starts growling at the back door and I let her out and she goes and chases him. Poor squirrel. But he does very well out of us. We leave him out walnuts and pumpkin seeds he likes. And generally, he, um, he has his fill. He's a lovely little squirrel. He sometimes eats out of Bert's hand if Bert sits still enough, which is pretty cool. I hope uh, today's episode left you inspired to gather in new ways I know it did for me I think there's been a real journey for me in this which is that when I first realised I was autistic I cut down vastly on gatherings I realised it was one of the things that I was finding very hard to deal with I was gathering too much I guess and I was gathering without knowing the rules or being able to establish the rules clearly enough to make it manageable for me but I've kind of come through that a little now, I guess. It's all about finding balance, isn't it? I'm craving other people's company again a little, but in a different way. I still often come up to things in my calendar and dread them, that, you know, I'd look forward to them when I put them in there. I think that'll always be me. Anyway, let me know what you think. Let me know if you feel that there are better ways we can get together in the future and I'll see you all really soon bye and that's all for this episode thank you for being here to explore how we live now to share your comments questions or answers go to howwelivenow.info and write a message or record a voicemail We'll be compiling the best ones into an end-of-season special. How We Live Now is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. For updates, show notes and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at catherinemay.substack.com. And finally, please consider pre-ordering my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes.